Now the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So this time of year is quite busy in terms of commemorations. Some of you may on Friday have commemorated the invasion of Parihaka village in Taranaki. In 1600, volunteers and armed constabulary invaded this peaceful village, illegally arrested all the men, including the leaders, Te Piti Orongomai and Tohu Kākuhu. Some of the women were raped. Many of the dwellings were destroyed. And over the next weeks and months, many who lived there were forced to relocate back to where their tribal areas Parihaka's crime was that it had come to symbolise the peaceful resistance to the confiscation of Māori land and try as they might, as they tried, the Europeans tried to build roads, uh, put up fences, uh, Māori would come along and take down the fences and plough the roads. This could not be tolerated. The land belonged to the Europeans. There was also uh, an element of resentment one of the problems was Parihaka had a higher standard of living than many of the European settlements, and that just did not fit the European worldview. It is an incredibly dark day in the history of this country. And then next Thursday is Armistice Day, and next Sunday is Remembrance Sunday, the days that we remember and commemorate the ending of World War I. And as we do that, we remember the dislocation and grief that, that that war caused around the world and here in New Zealand, Aotearoa. The families who had to deal with the grief of those who did not come back and those who had to deal with the grief of those who did come back forever changed. And maybe more important for us today, 1918 also marks the beginning of the great influenza pandemic. Uh, more commonly called the Spanish flu, although um, it's kind of a misnomer. It's called the Spanish flu because, uh, I mean, one of the great myths about World War I is that um, we fought for our freedoms, like freedom of press. But in fact, across uh, France and Britain and their empires and in the Germany, which they just defeated, uh, there was a blanket ban on bad news. So when the influenza epidemic started, no one was allowed to talk about it in the newspapers. But Spain was not under those controls, so their press was allowed to talk about it. So the first newspapers to talk about this Spanish flu was in Spain. So we went, oh, it came from there. It didn't. But it was a brutal time. Uh, it's generally accepted that somewhere between 25 and 50 million people died, uh, although some numbers go as high as 100 million. It was spread in part by soldiers returning from World War I, taking it back with them, and it was made much worse by overcrowding and unsanitary living conditions for many around the world, and including on the troop ships, and malnutrition, in part brought on by World War I. It was young men who uh, were the chief death toll in this pandemic. And now we're in, there was the swine flu, and now we're in the, the next greatest pandemic at the moment, a hundred years later. And I was surprised 
when I was doing my reading, to find that for many churches, this Sunday is All Saints, All Souls. Because last Sunday was Reformation Sunday, the day when uh, those in the Reformed tradition commemorate Martin Luther doing his thing. And uh, we often talk about him nailing his theses to the cathedral wall um, and door, but he may have done that, but actually what he really did was he posted a letter. Uh, to the Archbishop of Mainz. And in that letter, he included his 95 theses about indulgences that he wanted debated. So he wasn't actually being particular, like he was being very critical of indulgences, but at that point he just saw himself as a faithful Catholic. Uh, so he himself did not see this as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, uh, but it is now um, seen as the beginning of the Reformation. So the 31st of October is seen as Reformation Sunday, and usually you can kind of do the last Sunday in October and then the first Sunday in November, but this year it just didn't work. So there, All Souls, All Saints, is this Sunday. At the heart of all of these events is this profound sense of grief. Grief for what was lost, grief for those who died. Grief at the new situation that people found themselves in. Grief at having to let go of life as it had been. And grief for having to live in a new world for better or for worse. The writer of one of the resources I use, uh, who's based in the United States, invited us to help uh, our parishioners on their All Saints, All Souls Day to name our grief for those who have died. Yes, but also uh, as we continue to go through the ongoing effects of this pandemic. Compared to most of the world, just about all the rest of the world actually, we've had it pretty easy, but it doesn't feel like it. It still feels like this has been hard work and so this is an opportunity for us to name that this is hard work and to name our grief. For many of us, we long to go back to how it once was. And there's a great deal of anxiety and fear caused by the uncertainty around what our COVID future holds. When will this end? What will our new normal look like? And we join the psalmist in singing, How long, Lord, how long will we sing the song in the strange land? And in the midst of this, we have Ruth. So again, thank you to Bonnie for her introduction to this wonderful story last week. The story of Naomi and Ruth. Honestly, I think this book should be called Naomi more than Ruth. She's the central character. It is the story of two women who are left in an incredibly perilous situation by the deaths of Naomi's husband and sons. Men are very important in this world. They provide your safety and your security. If you lose your men, unless you come from a wealthy family, you're stuffed. So they were stuffed. It's also a story full of grief and disappointment and questions. And at the heart of this book is protest. 
It is first and foremost a book of protest against the proclamations of Ezra and Nehemiah when the exiles returned from Babylon back to Israel. Their proclamation that all those who had taken non-Jewish wives must send them away along with their children to maintain racial purity. As the kinsman of Naomi's husband says in Ruth, to take a non-Jewish wife and to father a child with her would risk damage to his inheritance. So this book of Ruth stands against the need for racial purity and it reminds all those who hear them that this foreigner, Ruth the Moabite, and she is constantly called Ruth the Moabite to reinforce the fact that she is not of the 12 tribes, she is a Moabite. This Ruth the Moabite becomes the great-grandmother of David, the great king. Obed, her son, is the grandfather and Jesse, her grandson, is the father. So it's a great protest book. And we need to hold on to that, remember that. But it's also Job-like protest against the common theological position that God rewards the righteous with wealth and sons. Like Job, this book offers a minority opinion against this dominant what is called Deuteronomic theology of the First Testament. This idea that the rich are being blessed by God and the poor are being punished. Naomi protests this understanding of God because, well, first of all, it justifies this painful story and it somehow diminishes her pain and loss. She says in chapter 1 when she's welcomed back to Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi, Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? In chapter 1 of verse 9, the Hebrew is very difficult to translate and mostly it's kind of smoothed over in the English translations. But there's a kind of gap which most people don't know what to do with. But one scholar has kind of offered this translation. May Yahweh give to you, oh forget it, find rest each one in the household of your husband. Like there's a real sense that she just gives up on God. God is no longer trustworthy. God is uncertain. And that uncertainty about God is central to the rest of the story. She can no longer trust God, and so she will take action herself. But this is more than a protest book. It is a really important book for us in our time. One of the important things about this book is that it embraces questions. And it makes space for our experiences of grief and anger and anxiety and uncertainty. Even at the end, when the women are telling Naomi all about God's greatness, there's a sense that she's left with her grief and her frustration 
and to her questions. And that's okay. Her husband is still dead. Her sons are still dead. And she has had to do some pretty conniving things to create a secure future for her and for Ruth and to maintain her husband's name. There are no easy answers in Ruth. And, well, while the woman would say God was in the midst of that, it's not entirely clear that Naomi would agree. For some, maybe many, the last 20 months have raised many questions. Many of us are left feeling uncertain and angry and anxious. We're all grieving one way or another. Deep down, we would love things to be as they were. That's, I think, part of what the protests are about and why the ACT Party is wanting a Freedom Day. Let's just pretend that none of this is happening and just go back to how it was before. And that will make everything fine. But things are not as they were before and they will not be for some time if ever. So today we are invited to name our grief and to hold it and maybe to know that God is in the midst of that. The story of Ruth and Naomi is also a story about how to name and hold our grief. The Hebrew in verse 14 in chapter 1 describes the woman as clinging together. It's a little less clear in the English translations. It's kind of like, oh, well, they went along together and that was nice. But actually the Hebrew is clinging. They cling together. And together they find a way. Together they they go home to Naomi's home in Bethlehem. Together they work out how they can find food. Together, they work out how they can, well, invite Boaz to uh, to be the redeemer, the redeemer of the name of Naomi's husband, and to provide them security. So the question then is, who do we cling to? Who are we clinging to as we find our way forward? Who is it that we can name our grief and pain with? Who can we ask our questions with? Not for easy answers, but to hold them, to name them as we work through them. Who can we work through our grief and frustration and pain and uncertainty and anxiety and questions with? Who are the people we journey through this time with?
So normally on All Saints, last Sunday we would have had this wonderful glass block thing over here and we would have lit candles, but we didn't do that. Uh, so, uh, in fact, we didn't even. Bonnie was kind of in charge and she completely forgot about the candle thing, actually. And um, towards the end of the Zoom service, somebody said, what are we doing with the candles? And Bonnie went, oh, I forgot. Uh, you can light them if you like. Oh, that was much she had done. So because we didn't do candles last week, I thought we could do candles this week. Uh, because there are lots of churches around the world who are doing All Saints this Sunday, so we'll join with them. And as we do that, and our hope is that sometime next year, uh, we can actually have a much bigger service and invite people from the community to come and to name the people they grieve for and to light candles for them. But for now, this is as good as we can get. So I'm going to light the candles on your behalf. And as I do that, I invite you to think about the people you would like to light candles for. And I'd also like you to think about your own grief and your own questions and to name that. And finally, to name who are the people you journey through this time with and to pray for them as I light these candles.